This is Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say, on the air. Tuning you into the Latino literary renaissance in all its splendor. Interviews, teatro, rap, fiction, poetry, memorias, composer spotlights, and more. Always mas. I'm Tony Diaz. We're recording remotely for broadcast on Tuesday, June 2nd, 2020. Today, we focus on two Latinas changing the world through their brilliance and art. One stars in a new film about the struggles of our undocumented community, and the other is making a national impact, telling our community stories through classic and new media. We first talked to Erica Munoz, who stars in the film Long Gone By, by acclaimed filmmaker Andrew Morgan and Untold Films. This film portrays the impossible realities of undocumented Latino immigrants. It is currently playing on HBO. On the second half of the show, we interview Jessica Hoppe, a New York-based writer and social media strategist, former lifestyle editor of Stylecaster. She founded Nueva Yorka. She's been tackling the challenges of alcoholism and recovery during the COVID-19 shutdown, especially for the Latino community. We're recording remotely and sometimes weeks ahead of our air dates. This makes it complicated to address breaking news. However, we must address the current death of George Floyd in Minneapolis, Minnesota. This is an ongoing and rapidly changing situation, so facts and analyses will change day to day. However, today's show is about unleashing our voices, the power of art to heal, and changing the world. Sudden acts such as the killing of George Floyd on Minneapolis streets by those assigned to serve and protect us, are examples of racial bias coming to a dangerous boiling point. We must address the layers that lead to that. That is shaped by the inequities of the educational system in black and brown communities. This has been overlooked for too long. African-American and Latino youth must receive the best education this nation has to offer in sharing their stories, cultivating their imaginations, and edifying their spirits play a vital role in that. Social justice is hard to quantify, easy to hide, and profoundly shapes our community's confidence, tranquility, and peace of mind. Those factors are vital to thrive and to create an entire generation that can advocate for us, defend us, and fight for civil rights at every level. George Floyd grew up in Houston. He attended our schools. He walked our streets. We feel the loss of his family. We will continue to unite to uplift the voices of our communities and to stand up for civil rights and to stand up against injustice. The mission of Nuestra Palabra, since it was founded in 1998, has been to address these issues. We must be humanized and imagined and treated as intellectuals capable of great thoughts and great deeds. We have walked with you on this path for 22 years and we will continue and we will all succeed. I must point out that KPFT is a nonprofit radio station. We couldn't talk this way about these topics with the folks that we reach out to if this were a solely commercial enterprise. Right now we are on Pledge Drive. You'll notice that there are no regular shows about our art, culture, and politics on commercial television or radio. KPFT has a monopoly on community culture capital. We answer only to our community. Please budget a donation to KPFT and make it in support of Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say. Today, please call 713-526-5738 or visit the website kpft.org. We have a monetary goal, a goal for new members, and a goal for online donations. We thank you in advance for helping us meet and exceed those goals. 
We also want to thank our crew that helps us bring you this program week in, week out, year after year. That includes Lati Lopez, Rodrigo Bravo, who mixes the show remotely, Claudia Soler Alfonso, Jesse Aranda Comer, who is our intern through Rice University, Laurie Flores, Stefano Cavasa, Al Castillo. I'm happy to join you every Tuesday from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. for Nuestra Palabra, Latino Writers Having Their Say. I also join you Tuesdays from 2 to 3 p.m. for Latino Politics and News, also here on KPFT. And I get to talk to you on the political talk show, What's Your Point, on Fox 26 Houston, Sundays at 7 a.m. This is Tony Diaz. Thank you for joining us for Nuestra Palabra, Latino Writers Having Their Say. Hi, I'm Antonio. I'm in college studying aerospace engineering with a minor in math and physics. And I've done the math. Nuestra Palabra, Latino Writers Having Their Say, fuels the culture that accelerates my knowledge and lifts our spirits. Call 713-526-5738 right now to donate and help Nuestra Palabra, Latino Writers Having Their Say, and KPFT hurdle past the financial obstacles that threaten to bring down this stellar program. You can also donate online by visiting www.kpft.org. Donate in support of Nuestra Palabra, Latino Writers Having Their Say. With this cultura, the sky is not the limit. Call 713 713- 526-5738 Unidos Thanks for tuning in to Nuestra Palabra, Latino Writers Having Your Say. This is Tony Diaz. We are recording this episode remotely. It will broadcast on June 2nd, 2020. But we have the pleasure of talking about a new film, Long Gone By. And joining us through the magic of telephone is Erica Munoz, who is a lead actress and associate producer for it. So first of all, welcome to Nuestra Palabra. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. And it's very exciting, too, because we want to know a lot about you, but also we want to celebrate this film. Because even though it was shot and created before the pandemic, I think it ties in profoundly. It was actually shot two years ago, the first year we, we started, we just submitted to a bunch of festivals, which we were rejected from a lot of them because no there's not a, there's kidding. not a, yeah, there's not a name in the movie. So Andrew, the director, he really, he had come off a, an incredible film and he was having all these big conversations and they were saying, if you're going to make a narrative film, you need to put a name in it. You need to put a name in it. And he just insisted for whatever reason to really give a platform to two unknown Latina actors, right? So it was myself and my niece who played my daughter. And yeah, so then the New York Latino Film Festival picked it up. And that's where everything changed because they really are doing the work that people say they're doing with these festivals. You know, they're actually investing in unknown talent. They're actually giving a platform to people that don't have a voice. But to your point, it is resonating now in a way that we couldn't have anticipated when we started Mm. shooting it. That's powerful, too, because I can't help but think that if there is a persona that's the lead character who we already know from some mm. other experience, all of a sudden mm-hmm. it changes a lot. So so I love it that it was more organic. And I'll, I'll tell our listeners, mm. long gone by, originally prepared, as you said, at HBO's New York Latino Film Festival last summer. Mm-hmm. It tells the tale of Ana Alvarez, a single mother from Nicaragua living in Warsaw, Indiana. Can't believe I said the English name wrong and the Spanish name <laughs> correctly. But I, I thought. <laughs> and, uh, oh, that's great. I'm just relieved to hear the Munoz. But, uh, uh, hey. Most people are there Munoz. I'm like, no, Enye. It's an Enye. It's right there. It's a squiggly line. <laughs> And uh, Uh, it's on a a story with her teenage daughter, Izzy, when a routine check-in leads to a deportation order. And Mm. especially here in Texas, 
we can mm. we can there's a lot of folks that can relate to that mm. life as Anna knows it ends timing couldn't be worse as Izzy has just been accepted to Indiana University a dream that becomes a nightmare when she discovers that because of her immigration status she will not qualify for the needed scholarships or federal aid faced with an impossible mm. reality of a lifetime away from her daughter Anna decides to risk everything and last chance effort to leave Izzy's tuition paid for before her time runs out. An intimately unnerving portrait of a woman willing to sacrifice anything to give her daughter the chance at a life she's never had. This is such a poignant story, but we have a sister program, Latino Politics and News, and we've been talking yeah. about how at the federal level you have the administration vilifying mm-hmm. undocumented laborers, but then saying that they're essential workers on one hand but then you've got Bessie DeVos as Secretary of Education denying a COVID relief to DACA recipients. Did you imagine those parallels it's would come astounding. Out? No, when Andrew started writing the film we had just come off of the election. We were both kind of like just kind of shell-shocked if I'm being really honest. We were both just like how did... And so Andrew is a, you know, he's a documentary filmmaker and he wanted to start uh, doing a documentary series. He thought, how can I be of service? What can I do? Like where we're not being argumentative, we're just telling stories. And he just decided, you know, I think one thing that would help is if we just get into the community, let's like have conversations with people and show how connected we all really are underneath all the rhetoric and all the insanity. So he started working on this documentary series. It was called Untold America, and I was producing it. And we spoke to some of the agriculture workers in Central California and these communities that were red communities, red counties, but who were starting to to lose all of their staff and, and couldn't get anybody in. Wow. And these are people that, <laughs> right? So they could not, these people in charge, they were like, okay, okay, we voted that way, but... What, these are good people. These are our, these are our people. Like we've been, so once you're in a community with someone, suddenly it's, these are good people and they should be able to work and we don't want to see them. So it's like, as soon as you remove the humanity from it, that's where people can start being kind of crazy. Mm. It's, it's almost like this new world of being behind a lens or behind a social media, that whole world where it's like, you're, if you're behind a screen, you can say whatever you want. But once you're confronted with the humanity of people, right, that's what we started noticing. There was another family that was a woman and her three daughters her three kids and they were taking shelter, literally taking shelter in a church. And it was this whole story about sanctuary churches where the state was not coming in, which is not really a law. They weren't coming in. This was very early on. This was like a couple months where you immediately started seeing change. And quite frankly, I mean, I had my issues with the previous administration and and immigration too. I mean, we, we, we have a, I'm not even going to go down this road, but we have a really skewed idea the whole system needs to be overhauled. These are essential people. These are essential workers, and we're fine to let them bring their backs in the fields, but we don't want to. We don't want to help their families out. We don't want. These are. They're literally putting food on our table. Another story we worked on. These all shaped the film. Was a, a young girl who was just the most incredible student and incredible person. She wanted to be a doctor. It was her dream, and she was. Um, she's a dreamer. She's a DACA recipient, and she couldn't get financial aid. But her state and the college were so inspired by her story that they found a way to get her funding so she could finish her undergrad. And then she had to go through the hurdle of trying to get accepted into medical school, which I'm happy to report she did just finish Beautiful. school. And she is going wow. into medical school. And she's just doing – but that sort of started – Andrew wanted to move into narrative. And he, he and I – I was kind of a new mother at the time. He has four small children. And we started talking about so many things about – Immigration in that context, we started talking about the bond between mother and child and then concepts of legal and illegal and what does it mean and and how can that be moved around. And we just started having very early conversations about what could it be, what could it look like, how could we frame the story. And beyond that, he, he and I both had conversations about how we noticed that in film you see a lot of really interesting, complicated men in in characters you know you see a lot of you know hell or high water people that can have all kinds of conflict but with women and particularly women of color it's very we have to fit into these little boxes we have to be the the saintly maid right in roma mm-hmm. which i love roma but the saintly maid right. or we're you know or we're just an invisible set piece it's like we can't be 
all facets of a human being. So all those things together built where we started the story. And I was shocked as anyone that he wanted me to, to play her. And mm. it was, he was building it around me. I, I, I even said to him, are you sure you don't want to audition other people? <laughs> and he said, because I care for him and I wanted his movie to be successful. And I knew he had the option. But he was insistent that, like, no, I mean, you've been in this industry forever, and he felt he felt that I had the ability to do it. Well, you both picked yeah. the most difficult process possible to create a film. Yeah. <laughs> but, but... Yeah, you know, and that's, that's how it is in the, in the creative. And I've been in this industry for a very long time, for a very long time. But every year or so, you're like, all right, this is it. <laughs> Everything's going to happen now. <laughs> and then you kind of have to, you have to, like, reset and go again and then okay now this is it and so you're always sort of reinventing yourself but the core of what we want to do which is tell stories and tell stories about people and hope that those stories um shed a light on the humanity that we all have in common that's kind of our that was kind of our goal that's beautiful early and, on and i think what's great about talking to you is that you bring an intelligence obviously a cultural no, background to, to the whole experience and that can explain too how you're lead actress and also associate producer i want to remind folks yeah. that <laughs> you know you're known for your roles in the Pulitzer prize winning broadway musical rent what also yeah. <laughs> <Crazy> <laughs> anatomy numbers and jericho yeah. most recently you were featured in aor's miss you all the time video directed by rudy mancuso Ooh. and currently shooting the lead role opposite renee victor in the feature city of crows you live in la with your husband two kids and you continue yeah. to work on television film theater and print work but that versatility that complexity yeah. that knowledge and industry does that all play a role in creating this work of art i think one of the things that that andrew has said before is that what he felt that I, and you know, and Anna is, is she's, she's based on a lot on my mom, my own mom, mm. who is very smart and very driven. And she was a single mother very early on. She and my father divorced when, when I was about 13. And so she had four kids, no high school diploma. She worked three or four jobs. Girl was like making piñatas in the, like for our neighborhood, wow. <laughs> like huh. also driving to LAX to go to the airport to work a night shift there. And then, getting up and having food ready for all of us, four small kids, all two years apart. She, she taught me a lot about perseverance. I mean, very early on, and I, I've shared this story before, but like my very first audition was for Annie. And I just thought, you know, oh, I'm going to try out for Annie. Like I can play Annie, right? And nobody, I mean, it didn't even occur to me. I didn't even occur to me that like, why can't I play Annie? <laughs> right? But of course, at that time, it wasn't cute to put a brown girl in Annie. They didn't want, they wanted a little white girl with red mm. hair, right? Mm. So, of course, I didn't get it. And that was kind of the first time that I was like, oh, I can't play whatever I want. I got to I gotta fit into whatever box they want me to fit in. Because it didn't, you know, I, I grew up right. in the first five years of my life. I was in Costa Rica. So, like, this was the first time that that was even kind of put in front of me. All of it comes together in building a character like this, framing a film like this. And, and you know, Andrew's leadership, his his compassion, his intelligence, his ability to see, you know, I'm a cis white male. I don't know anything about being a mother. I don't know anything about being a woman of color. So I'm going to hire, he hired his wife to be the producer of the film, who's the mother of four, and also asked me from the beginning to come and help him frame the story. And that was right, right away. And then just really... Let us not jump into stereotypes and really just let us create an interesting woman and an interesting story. So it all it all kind of came together. But, yeah, certainly my crazy life experience has added to it. <laughs> no, and, and that is great to have that sort of creative freedom and, as you mm. say, break all those stereotypes that are just so prevalent. Tell us a little bit more about yourself and what part of the Latino family tree are you from? Yeah. <laughs> I'm Central American. I'm um, from Costa Rica. My dad and my mom are both Costa Rican. My grandfather, my grandmother. My grandfather actually passed away during production of the film. And he used to he used to live in LA and like party with Hector Level and all those like early salsa guys. He was like a party animal. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm from Central America. I lived there till I was about five. We moved here. And I grew up in Orange County, like North Orange County, not um, Newport Beach, Orange County. <laughs> so Orange, Orange County is closer to L.A. And I started doing theater when I was very little. That that play, Annie, that I did, that I tried to get, I didn't, obviously didn't get the part. And I was like, that's it, I'm done. My career's over. I'm never going to act again. <laughs> 
And my mom, this will tell you everything you need to know about this woman and how she raised me. She said, well, do you want to act? And I was like, yeah, but I mean, I can't. And she said, okay, if you don't want to do it, if you don't like it, that's one thing. But if you like it and you love it, you, you just, you're, I'm not going to allow you to give up. You mm. can't give up. You got to, wow. you got to keep going. And it, she's like, and if you want to do it, you're going to hear no all the time. That's what, like, get used to it. Like, you just got to keep going. So she literally forced me to go to the next audition. And then I, I got a little part in the play and, and I was very happy. And then I just like never went back. That's awesome. <laughs> I took a small break. Yeah. I yeah. took a small break. I lived in Oklahoma and Texas for a little bit. Texas. Um, All right. Well, I lived in Oklahoma. I went to University of Oklahoma to finish my degree. I thought I was never going to act again. I was just kind of burnt out with all the same sort of roles I was going out for. And I just, I was like, yeah, I think I'm done. I don't, I want to go do something else. And, and my husband's family is from like the Panhandle, like Amarillo area. But Texas is always coming up in my life, actually, one way nice. or another. <laughs> I had a boyfriend once that was from Texas, from Houston, actually. Hey. I think so. <laughs> that was a long time ago. <laughs> anyway. But yeah, so then I, then we came back and, and I just, you know, the industry had started to change a little bit. There was more um, more versatility in roles, and I thought, oh, maybe I'll give it another chance, maybe go out for some commercials or things like that. And then little by little, I started working again. So, As an associate producer, what does that constitute? Mm-hmm. The produ- producer is such a strange kind of all-encompassing job. I mean, there's different facets of it. There's facets of it where you're literally just the money, and that definitely was not me. But then there's the other part of it where it can be a lot of different things. It can be like a little bit of what Emily did, which was helping shape some of the story. Um, Emily is Andrew's wife, who was also, who was the producer on the film. Um, And it can be, and then she kind of literally, when we got there, it was a skeleton crew. It was like an eight or nine person crew. My husband was assistant director. My family was flown out there. I mean, it was like, we were all in what was like a college. Yeah, it was crazy. So it was, it's that kind of thing where they can kind of be the person who is, orchestrating the entire thing. This is, here's the schedule. Here's where you have to be, that kind of thing. And then the producer credit I got, you know, I didn't know I was getting a producer credit, mm. actually. It was just right at the beginning of the pro. I had been working with Andrew Story producing for that documentary series, which really just entailed kind of like researching. Like if you're, if you're in like the writing world, it's kind of like the research arm. I want to talk to you like you know, here's a story I found that I think is really interesting and it's in the vein of what you're looking for. Maybe we can reach out to this person, that kind of thing. So with with the film, it was really just from the beginning, creatively working on kind of filling in the blanks for Andrew because this is not his experience. This is not, he doesn't, you know, in a, in a lot of different ways. He didn't grow up with really anybody in this community he didn't you know what i'm saying he's Mm -hmm. not a mother he doesn't know what it feels like to be a mother so he needed a lot of like well he didn't need he asked for a lot of input and he wanted to be what do you think of this does this work does this feel authentic does this feel true that kind of thing so that's kind of what my role was and i i I was involved from literally the day that he had the idea to to the end of the film and then like about halfway through he was like I'm, I'm gonna give you a producer credit you've been doing so much and so I was like oh my gosh okay I'll take it <laughs> That's awesome. so I was just working on the film as a consultant really just you know which is why I think I put my producer hat on and was like are you sure you don't want to audition other people because a producer will tell you those kinds of things like you might want to look at a name because um you know it's hard to get into festivals it's hard to get it sold it's hard to get it um, looked at if you don't have a single name but um that's great though because he, he did need he did he didn't know what those did. experiences were like he did need it but he was open to you know teaming up with you and then giving you the credit that's due oh. because i don't care which field it is that isn't always the case or oh, we, you know we're, absolutely. we're not involved in fair exchanges of cultural capital where it's like hey thanks for all this child pascal you know, so. Oh, absolutely. I think, I think that says everything you need to know. And again, this was like, like, I think I said that this was a couple of years ago. So even now in the last couple of years, things have changed and evolved and stories are, you know, there's, there's a real like attachment to wanting our stories to be told. And I think, especially in our communities, we're like, we're so starved of representation that we want, to be represented authentically. And so it's like, it's so hard because 
you know, like white actors don't have that problem. They're represented right. everywhere. They run the gamut. They can, they, there's 20 shows about white people hanging out on a couch, right? <laughs> so we get, we get like a show here, a show there, a show here. And we're just like, we want, you know, we want, I mean, I think I was reading about West Side Story, the new West Side Story, with a little girl that's playing her. I think she might be Puerto Rican, but she's not like from Puerto Rico. I'm, I don't know what the deal is, but there was like a little bit of upset. People were up, you know, upset about that. And it's like, it's such a hard thing to manage. There's a constant evolution, even inside our community and even inside my generation and the younger generation coming up that's asking really smart questions and asking us to challenge ourselves. So I think the first step is what's happening here, which is like a person of privilege kind of saying, look, I'm using my privilege in this position to give an opportunity to an actor who's been in the business for a, a very long time. And I want to see what happens and I want this person to be involved. And I recognize that this is not my experience. So I'm going to specifically have conversations with people whose experience this is. And I'm going to let that inform the story. And then like the steps beyond that are, okay, now let's start telling our own stories. Now let's start telling different stories. Now let's start telling stories about, you know, five brown people sitting on the couch. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, let's start, let's all start, let's, because there's so many facets, even in, and I'm sure you have this experience, even in your own family, you've got like, you've got the player, you've got the funny person, you've got the smart person, you've got the messia, you've got the one that's always, you know, cheese man in the corner. You know, there's always, there's so, there's so many different facets that I think that's the next step in the evolution of this conversation is let's start telling more stories. Let's start opening up the landscape a little bit. And I think you're right. There is a, a need for this. So, so folks yeah. can see it by going to HBO now, HBO on demand, mm -hmm. HBO go. And of course I would imagine if this was not a pandemic situation, you probably yeah. would have been doing tours and going around because they, yeah. they would eat this up in Texas. You know what I'm saying? Like you coming back uh, to yeah. Houston, uh, people would pack a place and then you know, know. go tell their tias. So, so yeah, no, I mean, it, it, so it's this odd moment where you're, you're, you know, long gone by is even more poignant. You're the sensibility that yeah. you need as well right now, but it's, a little harder to promote. Let me ask you this. Let's be real. This yeah. film should be a success, so there's more like it. But what are some of the criteria that would help mm. show the industry that this is the right film, we want more? What are some ways we can You help? know, well, I mean, I think, so there's a show right now called The Baker and the Beauty. I don't know if you've heard of that. It's on like ABC, I think. It's just a, it's just a sweet, little, fun, little show, things like that. There's another show, Vida. It just got its last season on Stars, and I love it. Um, hence, if I, I, I just got a second Vida. season. I do love Vida, yes. Yeah. So there's all these shows, I think, and all of these opportunities. I think it's, like, really, you know, it's. I get really challenged by this sometimes because I think there's a lot of people that make a lot of noise, right? But then there's not any action, any mm. follow-up. So, like, for a film like this, I mean, what we need is views. We need people to watch it. We need people to write about it. We need people to talk about it. What we needed was a place like HBO to buy it. So it's nuts that they did. I mean, it's bonkers. They have no reason <laughs> to buy a movie like this. <laughs> There's not a single name in it. It's a small, very quiet film, you know. But they are, I think, putting into action um, the, the narrative of, you know, giving a lens to unknown Latina, Latino talent, Latinx talent, mm. people that don't have a name yet, because like there are plenty of people that we know and plenty of people that are out there, but there, I can name like five or six actors just in my small little orbit that I've never even met face to face that I've seen work that I'm like, this is a brilliant actor. Mm. This is an actor that should be everywhere, everywhere. And Nobody knows who this person is. Why doesn't anyone know who this person is? Wow. So I think it's like, I think it really is about all they really care about is the eyeballs. Like they want people to see it and they want people to pay attention. And, and you know, when you get up there, like I, when I was younger as an actor, I always felt there a lot of competition, but now as like a grown woman, I see that we're all on the same sort of side and there, there is an abundance of opportunity if we all help each other out. So I'm constantly posting about 
different women and different people and different work that I respect and admire. And I think that's kind of all we can do. So if anything comes of this, like I may disappear into the fray and never work again, but if anything ever, if anything comes of this beyond this film and I work more for me personally, I plan to just give as many people an opportunity as I can. People that, that I like the same thing that happened for me, that I'm not a name and somebody gave me an opportunity and I'd like to do the same for other people. But I think the community just needs to, um, I mean, we are so powerful as a community. It's crazy. Mm. The buying potential, the voting potential, don't even get me started on the voting potential (laughs) of our community is like staggering. We could legit change the world. We just have to put our words into action. So for the movie, for something as, you know, for something as small as the movie, just like, you know, click it and play it in the background while you're cleaning your house. You don't even have to watch it. It's kind of sad. Don't even, <laughs> watch, you don't even have to watch it. But for, you know, and then in other areas, just like use your voice, write what you're doing, you know, talk about it, post about it, vote, 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 please. Love it. And just like, you know, use your voice. That's beautiful. Well, in closing, yeah. tell us how we can keep up with what you're working on. You mentioned some of your social platforms. Oh, it's all the same. It's um, Erica Marie Munoz, at Erica Marie Munoz. And I'm an old lady, so I'm still learning how to use everything. <laughs> so my, my Instagram is, is not pretty, but you should follow it because that's where I post everything. <laughs> and, then it, I, and I'm on Twitter and Facebook. It's all the same, at Erica Marie Munoz. There's another Erica Munoz who's, I think, an actor, and she's, like, 18 years old and, like, a bikini model. That's not me. I'm I'm the one with the two kids. (laughs) Well, fantastic. Well, continued success. Keep us posted. Thank you. We're going to keep crossing our fingers to get you to Houston to to fire us up about Arte and Cultura. I mean, listen, if we were not in a pandemic, it's, like, good and bad because you know, some more people are watching the movie because more people are at home mm. and there's not much to write about. So they're writing about the movie. <laughs> but it's also like we don't get to do all the fun things, you know, but there's bigger problems in the world. We're all safe and happy and healthy. And that's all that matters. We've been chatting with Erica Munoz talking about her new film, Long Gone By. Thank you for calling in. Thank you. Cool. Un abrazo grande. Ciao. Okay, bye now. Hi, I'm Antonio. I'm in college studying aerospace engineering with a minor in math and physics, and I've done the math. Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say, fuels the culture that accelerates my knowledge and lifts our spirits. Call 713-526-5738 right now to donate and help Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say, and KPFT hurdle past the financial obstacles that threaten to bring down this stellar program. You can also donate online by visiting www.kpft.org. Donate in support of Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say. With this cultura, the sky is not the limit. Call 713-526-5738. Unidos. Remotely again. This is for broadcast June second, twenty twenty, and we're happy to get to chat through the magic of telephone with Jessica Hoppy. She's in Nueva York. First of all, thanks for calling in. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. And I want to let our folks know that you are again a New York-based writer and social media strategist. Former lifestyle right. editor at Stylecaster, you founded Nueva York in 2015, and has since been featured in the New York Times, Vogue, Paper Magazine, Gen Mag, Pop Sugar, 
HuffPost, and Yahoo. So we're happy to join that list. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. You were raised by immigrant parents. Your father is Ecuadorian, and your mom is from Honduras. And you grew mm -hmm. up in a Spanish-speaking home. You've been passionate about storytelling, diversity, and Latin American culture from an early age on. And you're currently writing your first book of essays on the first-gen experience in America. And today we want to touch bases because you have struck a chord regarding staying sober during this lockdown mm. crisis when there's a lot of different narratives that are either superficial, sometimes harmless, but also tap into a lot of stereotypes about being a writer and different narratives that, that might not be healthy. You've really tapped into it. Thank you so much for holding it down in Overjork, Hermana. We're doing our best. It's not been easy, but it's um it's an experience that's definitely going to be definitive in our history, personally, um, as a community of Latinos and definitely as New Yorkers. So it's a very, very interesting time. New York was, uh, I started it really as just sort of um, a lifeline to creativity because coming from um, an immigrant household, many options. I mean, certainly anything creative was perceived as a luxury. So, you know, as the first to go to college in our family, my sister and I really tried to toe the line and follow the rules. And a lot of my parents' dreams have been left on the table. You know, they've been sacrificed. And that's a story a lot of us hear. It's a lot the pressure many of us feel. I took that on. Particularly with my dad, he had a dream of becoming a lawyer. And I, too, had a fascination with politics and law and justice and, well, injustice, really. Um, and I felt around me growing up here and feeling very, very different and extremely marginalized, but really not having any of the context or understanding the, the grasp of, of it all until I got older, which I'm very, I'm so grateful for. Um, looking back, it can be. I try not to dwell too much on the past, as my family sometimes do, but um, no, that's part of my writing, though, and it's part of the healing process to acknowledge it, you know, hold whatever feelings uh, you need, really validate that for yourself, and, and that's where the identification piece comes in, and that's really where the writing is, is so powerful, because that's what transcends to other people, and that's what connects them to, to that experience and enables them to heal, too, being seen Identifying with something um, is very, very helpful for people, and that's why art is so important. That's why it's all the more important right now when people are sort of able to translate their experience, the hardships or their joy, um, their connection with others, their love for others, connectivity. People feel less alone. And so obviously social media is a dominant aspect of our life now, um, but when I graduated college, I got an internship um, at Ralph Lauren, and that kind of tumbled me into the fashion industry, which chewed me up and spit me out, and I wasn't meant to be there, really. <laughs> but um, it was a passion of mine, which my mom says I inherited from my grandmother, who was a costera. She was mm. a really, really fabulously um, fashionable woman. She made all my mother's clothes, and she didn't teach me, unfortunately. I wanted her to, but... Supposedly, that is where my pension for fashion came from, and I got some good experience in the industry, um, certainly some great stories, and uh, it just wasn't paying the bills when the first um, financial crash came in 2008-2009, and um, I was without a job, and really, in that moment, a very similar moment as to now, uh, personally, where it was like, hmm, I can very easily lose it all. And I really need to find my center. Ultimately, we know how to survive yeah. <laughs> immigrants first gen. Um, we definitely know how to hustle and work hard and survive. I really wanted to, no matter what position I was in financially, um, to do something that really resonated and really felt like I was in my purpose, even if it wasn't my primary income what you're a testament to is that imagination helps you adapt to different platforms, different eras, because you were very honest recently in sharing some of your discussions about recovery 
and how that's been challenged during this lockdown, which I think brings up a lot of stereotypes about being the party writers, the muses and whatnot. Share a little bit about that and your openness about sharing that through your platforms. I've been sober for nearly four years, four years in August, and it it was such a journey to to get sober, and obviously a very painful one to arrive at that. And it was so confusing that I started understanding, hey, this is thing. These are nobody knows. I understand why so many people are confused. You know, I understand why it seems so harmless, and uh, especially for Latinos we do not talk about this stuff. Like things, you work hard, you you party hard. Things like this are a reward or not a big deal or just so ingrained in the culture that when things get murky, that just, we marginalize it. You know, we're just like, that's problematic, that's shameful, clean it up. I think that sort of perpetuates the stereotypes and as long as that shame is present, it, it, it's a present poison, and no one is going to get the help that they need. So when the pandemic hit, I had been wanting to talk about sobriety in the, from January. January is a time where a lot of people get dry, and, I, and the feedback that I've gotten from a lot of people in the community, particularly Latinas, is that the message is always coming from a white woman. It's often like, now we're really discovering that like mommy juice is not like cute (laughs) you know we're really um we're really glorifying this uh we're really glorifying something that's actually quite dangerous or we're just condoning it you know maybe we're not even glorifying it we're making sort of a joke haha and then we're condoning it and just like turning away and being like that's fine i think but for us, the consequences are so different. The systems of repression that punish addiction are very different for uh, black and brown people. So the consequences are so real for us to have all of these uh, labels put upon you. For me, I speak for myself as a brown woman. This was not a label I wanted to take on, certainly not publicly. I've been striving for, you know, for mm-hmm. perfection. Right. Um, perfection that was supposed to be the key to my survival and uh, my success in this country, right? We're all aspiring to this grand American dream. And uh, this was not part of that package. And so it was very, it was a really hard truth. And I, I took a lot of time to to understand it and understand, you know, where my place in it. And then the pandemic sort of threw me into this um and then I, I wrote a piece for Jen Mag and uh, a producer from ABC News read it, and she called me, and we spoke off the record for like two hours about this state of sobriety um, in during pandemic because the the alcohol delivery rate just shot up in an incredible like it was just soaring, right. and um, it sort of evened out. When they got all the numbers nationwide, like in New York, it shot up like hundreds um, and percentage, I'm meaning. And um, nationwide ended up at like 55% increase a market week reported. So it was terrifying. You know, alcohol is a depressant. So <laughs> while it might seem soothing, that only works for about 20 minutes. And naturally, <laughs> the body, well, t- chemically, that's all you get, really, um, from the moment of of, um, mm. of drinking. They started having your first sip or cocktail or whatever. The body is constantly keeping balance. So when you put this, when you put alcohol in your body, it it is it gives you that feeling uh, for about twenty minutes, whatever it is, soothing or it gives you a bit of a high or a buzz, um, and then it will it will ask for more um, in order to to be balanced, restabilize. And that sort of gets you in a, in a cycle of anxiety. And so it's actually making you feel more anxious, which is why we drink more and more. Um, so, and that, now that everyone is an alcoholic or an addict, uh, there's various, there's different reasons and ways that people arrive at, at forming a dependency or um, an inclination towards it. So for me, that journey um, 
is I needed to understand that personally. Um, and I wanted to, to speak on it because for Latinos, we are highly, highly susceptible based on our trauma coming to the United States and the trauma that we suffer um, being here um, as, uh, as members of the marginalized. It, it's a very... Um, it's a, it's a very difficult uh, lifestyle. And so it makes a lot of sense that we would turn to things to take the edge off. And that by doing that consistently, we afford some dependencies. However, um, particularly for alcoholics like me, that leads to really antisocial behavior and a cycle of demoralizing behavior. So if I were in that, in, in a pandemic, certainly... You know, as I say, like we're limited, we're we're stuck in our homes. Um, I don't know if I'd be able to control that or participate. You know, in the same way that I can um, being being in of sound mind and body, and I certainly wouldn't be able to um, to show up uh, to stay mentally, <laughs> to stay, uh, you know, to kind of deal with my anxiety and put one foot in front of the other. You know, there's a lot of things that got immediately taken away, and so it was a massive shock at first. And then it was just, um, like, a settling in to a whole new normal. So that meant going online to Zoom meetings, and that meant um, kind of going back to square one as far as my recovery uh, program was. But coming out on, like, the news. <laughs> well, I was like having nightmares prior to it because it's just a whole new ball game. It's a whole new audience, and um, my parents were obviously going to see it, and they're very, very supportive of me. But like when I told my dad in particular, I, I was like, "Oh, voy a salir en la noticias," and he was like, "Oh, wow, oh, good." You know, my dad just always loves the news, and um. I felt really shy uh, to tell him why, you know, why I was going down on news. And so I kind of told him, you know, people are being really unhealthy and, you know, I don't drink. And we're just going to talk about, um, we're going to talk about that. And he's like, oh, sí, la gente, quiere mucho. And, you know, <laughs> things like that. But um, he was really, really supportive. And he told me that I'm just so smart and he was just so proud of me. And so it was really Ultimately, it's really nice that those are the conversations that need to be need to occur, and they they don't happen once. You know, they happen over and over and over again. As I quarantine with my family because we decided that um, that would be safest, um, it was very, it was <laughs> just an exercise. I don't know. It was like family feud with like. Uh, extreme bonding plus survivor, <laughs> you know, and then like a top chef, you know, we've done all the things. Um, and yeah, we definitely had conversations about what I need on a daily basis to remain sober. And obviously, you know, my, my, the members of my family partake um, very healthfully and frequently. And so that's around. I don't want to be treated differently, but I definitely need, um, to have the conversations with my family so they understand how to best support me. And so I don't want to be, like, treated differently or labeled any kind of way as far as, like, I'm in control of my sobriety and I take full responsibility for that. But to have um, the support of your family and for them to be like, okay, I totally get this, um, that makes all the difference. So I think I think the the key thing in, in my stepping forward was that I wanted people to take this label and I wanted them to attach it to me. So whatever you believe that you understand about me or whatever you think that my platform is or whatever I'm achieving as a writer or however I look or whoever I am, I want you to understand that, that you can hold these all of these things together and put alcoholic on it and that is who I am. So whatever your preconceived notions or your assumptions, whatever, you know, scratch that, forget that. And um, I had such a warm response, especially from Latinos and Latinas. And I I know that uh, I heard from a young girl who's getting sober during the pandemic. And she's like, I always feel like the only Latina 
And it's so nice to see this. And I really needed to hear you. And I really needed to hear someone I identify so much with. So I'm hoping that this will slowly, you know, like, I don't want to be like um, the Pereo police or anything like that. <laughs> and when people are like, oh, so it's, I feel like I have a problem, what should I do? And I'm like, nothing. You know, like, there's nothing to, like, do. Like, don't jump on it. You know what I mean? Just, like, start asking yourself the question. That's all. Like, this is a great time to slow down and ask ourselves, you know, those questions. Because it's not the pandemic that's been... This is as... If you are questioning it, it's been with you. It's been inside you. Um, and maybe this is just the chance, the opportunity, the time that you need. Or maybe it will push you to do something that is really... Um, the bottom that you need it. You know, not everyone arrives at a, a low bottom, a rock bottom, as they say um, in AA, but, but some of us do. I'm, I was one of those people. And so if you are having a question, one of the best things like my therapist would tell me is when you feel a desire to drink, just ask, you know, take a, take a minute and just be like, why do I want this? You know, and usually there's a feeling behind it that might be leading you astray. You know, it might be fear. Or escapism, you want to numb out, you want to feel something like super good or super bad. Um, and really it's in that uh, contentment where, where we're best, you know, and that's where we can start to feel things. Because we have the natural ability to feel joy, elation, passion, anger, like all of these like naturally producing uh, chemicals, we're, we're doing it. Um, you really don't need anything to enhance any of those feelings. But it is really raw to start if you had, you know, gotten to the level of addiction that I had gotten to and having it all, you know, um, stop. Suddenly, it really was like having no skin on. And then when we had the pandemic, you did feel like I was going back because you have this expectation towards um, as much as I thought I had let go of an expectation, I really did. I was like, I'm doing everything right. I'm following this plan for a lifestyle, a healthy lifestyle, you know, and, and now there's, you know, and um, yeah, I was definitely angry. And I was like, is this what I got sober for, you know, and, and, and the answer over time and allowing myself to feel whatever I need to feel. Um, I, yeah, I just, I paused. I didn't do anything in those moments of desperation. I I took it really easy and slow, and um, I finally started taking steps in the right direction. But it's not always possible to do that right away. You know, I think that we really want to just instinctively know what to do and do it. You know, even if you do, sometimes it takes a minute. It's okay to go slower, too. I'm 37 years old, and I've arrived at really, really knowing and believing that I deserve uh, the things that I want. So, you know, it doesn't happen. My therapist calls me um, a late bloomer. <laughs> you're late for bloomerism. I'm like, um, that's okay. <laughs> I'll, try. Uh, I'll try. But uh, but it's yeah, great but... that you're sharing it with us, though. Do us a favor. Close this out by pointing out some of the platforms people can access. Thank you so much for being tan sincera, tan potente, tan fuerte, and really animándonos. And this is the introduction. I know we're going to be talking to you again and again and again and again. I hope so. <laughs> so, so tell our listeners how they can stay in touch with you. So you can follow me on Instagram. I'm at Nueva Yorka. So it's Nueva York with an A at the end. My name is Jessica Hoppe, H-O-P-P-E. Um, you can find me on Jen Mag and on ABC News Nightline. If you go to my Instagram, you'll find a link that takes you to all of my most recent articles. And I'm going to be a contributor with a column on um, a platform for mental health awareness and resources for women of color. It's called Sad Girls Club. But it's beneficial for everyone and i want to have a column about these vulnerable topics and how brave it is to be vulnerable and really lean into those feelings because i was always a crier as a kid and the baby in my family <laughs> and so that really became my label so i'm trying to really own that so i'm gonna call it la llorona and i'm gonna have <laughs> some of the biggest badass latinx leaders writers healers who use 
their work to move towards healing because it's actually really therapeutic to write it out. Even if they're struggling, like if you don't know what to do and you wake up really anxious, one of the things that a lot of um, therapists say, uh, and it's also in my creative book, The Artist's Way, they tell you to write two, two pages every morning. Like if you just sit, if you can't get into meditation or prayer or just write two pages of stream of consciousness, just get it all out, blah, 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 blah. And it really does release you. It could be something nice. But yeah, find me at Nueva Yorka on Instagram. And nuevayorka.nyc is my website. You can find everything there. And if anyone ever has any questions about alcohol, the woman who saved my life, all she said to me was, if you ever have questions about alcohol, and that's all I want to say to anybody, you know, I'll answer anything. And you can reach me anytime. I answer every single DM. That's awesome. Un abrazo grande. Continue Igualmente. success. Y tienes familia en Texas now, okay? <laughs> Gracias. And you have familia in New York Eso. anytime. Así. And we're going to be free soon to travel. So I really hope to meet you soon and we're going to be able to hug too. So I hope I can give you un abrazo fuertísimo. Looking forward to a huge reading in Nueva York and then Houston. <laughs> Great talking to you. Okay. Eso. Gracias. Gracias. Hi, I'm Antonio. I'm in college studying aerospace engineering with a minor in math and physics, and I've done the math. Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say, fuels the culture that accelerates my knowledge and lifts our spirits. Call 713-526-5738 right now to donate and help Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say, and KPFT hurdle past the financial obstacles that threaten to bring down the stellar program. You can also donate online by visiting www.kpft.org. Donate in support of Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say. With this cultura, the sky is not the limit. Call 713-526-5738. Unidos. never been a better time to donate your car to KPFT. When you contact the KPFT car donation hotline, you will do something great for this community. Call 1-855-573-8227 to donate or find out more information. KPFT is the only radio station of its kind located in Texas. It broadcasts music, news, information, and cultural programming from national distributors as well as locally produced offerings and more. Your donated vehicle goes to support this unique voice for yourself and others. Have an old car taking up space in your driveway? Donate it to KPFT now. Just call 1-855-KPFT-CAR or visit kpft.org to donate your old vehicle to support KPFT. Your contribution is appreciated. This is 90.1 KPFT Houston, kpft.org worldwide.
One in nine Americans listens to a local public radio station on a regular basis. Many use stations like KPFT to make voting decisions, music choices, their own conclusions about the world, or where to go over the weekend. That's because less than one half of one percent of programming on commercial stations goes to local public affairs. Why not consider supporting KPFT as a major donor? Whether as an individual or an organization, major donors help KPFT in many ways. Major donors help big station projects and ensure KPFT.